Welcome to our 66th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We're your host. I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. Russell, great episode today. We're going to be talking about, we're going to talk about the V601 Saladin. And then our second point, we're going to talk about the actual invasion of Kuwait. A lot of people say invasion of Kuwait. No, no, we're not talking about Desert Shield or Desert Storm. We're talking when the Iraqis actually went into Kuwait. Yeah. Well, people said, well, there wasn't any battles. You're wrong. You're wrong. And that's how I got to know about the FV-601 because, you know, when that happened, I was watching CNN and here's these little FV-601s fighting against, you know, the elite Republican guard tanks. So it was kind of a wild deal. So we're going to talk about that. And then we have uh, our new tank information or or what's tanks in the news. Tanks in the news. I think that's what we're going to start calling that. And uh, And if anybody out there has got any suggestions on any new tank news, pass it on along. Absolutely. And, And we were talking about comments and stuff but we'll save that for the end of the show yeah, yeah. we've had uh, quite a few youtube comments from a guy named tasmaz yeah. or tasman we want to give uh, that but let's go ahead and jump in so today russell we are talking uh, armored cars or as i refer to them as tank tanks with wheels the first one we are talking about is the fb 601 saladin russ tell us a little bit about it the FV-601 Saladin is a six-wheeled armored car developed by Crossley Motors and later manufactured by Alvis. Not Elvis, Alvis. I think people <laughs> that know tanks know who Alvis is. Designed in 1954, it replaced the AEC armored car in service with the British Army from 1958 onward. The vehicle weighed 11 tons, offered a top speed of 72 kilometers per hour, and had a crew of three. Pretty quick. Heck yeah. Saladins were noted for their excellent performance in desert conditions and found favorable with a number of Middle Eastern armies accordingly. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. That thing did very well oh, in wow. sandy environments and stuff like that. They were armed with a 76 millimeter low-pressure rifled gun, which fired the same ammunition that, as that mounted on the FV-101 Scorpion. So interchangeable. Sure. Good. The Saladin also spawned an armored personnel carrier counterpart, the Alvis Serkin. Despite the vehicle's age and dated design, it is still in use in a number of countries in secondary roles. Yeah. I think it also saw uh, some action in with the uh, police departments and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You yeah. know. But anyway, I'm sorry, Russell. Keep going. In 1945, a requirement came for the replacement of the World War II AEC heavy armored car in service following the end of the Second World War, the British Army issued a requirement for a new 6x6 wheeled armored vehicle to replace the obsolete AEC armored car. Design work began in 1947, and a contract was awarded to Alvis Cars to build two prototypes for trials. The new armored car was designated FV601A, and armed with an ordnance QF two-pounder gun. You know how much I hate those two-pounders. Oh, wow. I've always complained about that. Oh. Huge mistake. Alvis also proposed a much heavier fire support variant, designated the FV-601B, 
armed with a new 76 millimeter low pressure gun. Okay. Now see, I'm okay with the 76. Design work on the FV601B was subcontracted to Crossley Motors, which engineered and manufactured six pre-production models. After further modifications by Alvis, the FV601C entered mass production in 1958 as the Alvis Saladin. Production of the FV601C and its variants continued at the Alvis factory at Coventry until 1972. A special variant known as the FV601D was developed for law enforcement agencies and internal security purposes. This model lacked a coaxial machine gun and had different lights and smoke dischargers. The FV601D was only adopted by the German Federal Police Department, which designated it Genschutzer Sonderwagen III. A Saladin was also offered with the same 30mm Rarden autocannon as found on the FV-510 Warrior and FV-721 Fox. But this model did not favor with the British military or any export customers. They they were like, a lot of people were like, okay, 76 is way better than the two-pounder, but why don't you put this 30-millimeter autocannon on it? Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the British military was oh, like, yeah, uh, yeah. no, no. The Federal Republic of Germany was the first country to express an interest in the Saladin, specifically the FV601D. When production began, export customers such as Australia, Indonesia, and Ghana also placed large orders for the vehicle. By the late 1960s, the British Army was beginning to dispose of secondhand Saladins as military aid for various Commonwealth member states. The Saladin performed well on the export market, but was not as successful as its primary competitor, the French Panhard AML-90. I don't think we've done an episode on that we yet. We have not. Yeah. Uh, you know what? We'll have to do that. Uh, um, Put that on our list. I think the reason we haven't, and this is a terrible excuse, is because we, you know, me and Russell play this World of Tanks game, and we, we love it. Yeah. You know, they introduced into the game uh, these French Panhards, and we hate them. We, oh yeah, they're just so. Oh, I yeah, I I I, I know I have. If you haven't played start. World of Tanks, go ahead. If two old guys like me and Russ can do it, <laughs> you know we're you can do it. Download it and give it a try, dude. It's it's free. It is. The French Panhard AML ninety is much more heavily armed and cheaper. Yeah, you know what? I'll give them that. Yeah, it was yeah. cheap. <laughs> for a yeah, reason. <laughs> and, and had a better gun. Yeah. The Saladin shared many common components with the Sarakan armored personnel carrier, Stalwart, high mobility load carrier, and Salamander fire tender. That's what makes a successful military vehicle. Uh, parts. You can build something new, but if you can't get new parts for that vehicle, it sits there. But if you can pull a part off another or use a part that's laying around as spare parts and get that vehicle back into the fight, that's smart. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, we've talked about this before, Russell. You know, like the M4 Sherman. They could switch parts with uh, oh, know, yeah. a lot of the artillery pieces or that mobile artillery huge, pieces yeah. uh, um, and stuff like that. The Saladin, with all its variants, mm-hmm. had these spare parts. So if they blew a, a fuel pump, they could just pull it off one vehicle and get this vehicle back into the fight. Yeah. So, 
you know, this it, makes sense. It makes sense. Well, Russ, you know, my favorite part of the show is the stats. Give me some stats on this thing. Yeah, it weighed about 11.6 tons, had a length of 4.93 meters, width of 2.54 meters, a height of 2.39 meters, and it had a crew of three. The armor was actually up to about 32 millimeters thick. The primary armament was the 76 millimeter L5A1 gun. Secondary armament consisted of two M1919A4 machine guns. The engine consisted of a Rolls-Royce B80 Mark 6A 8-cylinder petrol engine. Cranked out about 170 horsepower. You know what? I love a Rolls-Royce. Oh, man. That's another vehicle I'd like to own. Sure, that thing hummed. The power-to-weight ratio was about 15.5 horsepower per ton. The suspension consisted of its 6x6 wheel. The operational range was about 400 kilometers with a speed of about 72 kilometers per hour. That's quick. Oh, it is. Total production was estimated about 2,000 between 1958 and 1972. Do you remember the first place that we saw the salad in? Oh, I don't. Remember that time I took you to, took you to Tulsa and we drove up on the Concord heavy tank? Oh. In, that, in the guy's front yard okay, and he yeah. took us out to the barn? Okay. That's where that Saladin was. Okay. I did not probably realize that that's what it was at the time. I, I, I didn't uh, yeah. until, you know, he explained Holy it. Holy cow. And he was like, yeah, it had a 76 on it and da-da-da. Dang. But that's uh, our friend at uh, Kiwi. Imports? Yeah, Kiwi yeah. Imports. Not Kiwi. Khaki. Khaki Imports. Khaki Imports. But uh, he's a uh, Tulsa police officer that would import yeah. British vehicles. British that, vehicles, yeah. He, he loved yeah, British yeah. vehicles. He had yeah. like conquer yeah. main battle tank. He fixes them up as museum pieces or somebody wants to he privately did. own one, yeah. he'd sell them to yeah. them. And sells it to yeah. them. But uh, he had what? Uh, com- he had a common out yeah. there and he had a Cromwell and he had this Saladin. And uh, I was like, remember he had that Harley Davidson dirt bike oh yeah 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 he had a harley davidson and you're thinking big old harleys and everything no this was a trail bike you know a real Man. dirt racer for off-road but it yeah. was a harley davidson and i was like oh this is the coolest thing ever <laughs> i'm like how did you do all this oh, on a tulsa yeah. cops pay yeah exactly very cool so like i said that's where we've seen this salad in Heck, I, you know, it's such a cool vehicle, and it was pretty wide open. Heck, I, I think I could fit in the turret. Hey. Uh, tell us a little about it, about its design, Russ. The FV600 family chassis was a 6x6 with independent torsion bar units. It gave a rather short turning circle and agility off-road, but overall the central axle was a real departure from the previous designs of World War II, which were all 4x4s. The central road wheels gave a better grip on all trains and offered several other advantages that were tested intensively by Alvis and in particular on the Serican, then preceded the Saladin. Though the Saladin was a compact and small design, especially compared to the AEC, which it replaced, the other great novelty was its fully enclosed compartment, which can be NBC-proofed if needed. And again, when we use NBC, we're talking about nuclear biological and chemical. Yeah. So they made this vehicle to go off-road in the worst conditions. 
The general design is conventional. Had a rear engine, central fighting compartment with a two-man turret, and front driving compartment. The hull was made of welded steel plates, about 13 millimeters thick on the sides to about 32 millimeters on the front glacis plate, which was enough against even large autocannons. Yeah, you know, there's a good example. It's coming down the road, and you step out with an AK-47. It's not. It's not going through. Yeah. When you're facing a couple of machine guns that this thing has, plus its cannon, it's going to clear the road. It is. It's going to get your attention. Despite this, the small hull had the vehicle still under 11.6 tons. The driver was posted in the center, like for the ferret, with a folding vision hatch and sight slit. Two other sight slits were present on each side, covering the front angle, protected by the deflectors. Between the massive road wheels were located four storage bins, eight in all. The turret had a narrow sloped face, and the sides had a rear recess, shaping a half-lozened backplate. The gunner and commander were side-by-side, with one-piece hatches. The gunner had a single periscope, while the commander had three covering the front angle and a pintle-mounted 30 caliber Browning M1919A4 machine gun. Yeah, we had said that it had two of those. People are like, well, what's an M, you know, 1919A4? It's just a Browning 30 cal. Yeah. Which was worked fine in World War II and still in use today. Heck yeah. The gunner was responsible for the medium-velocity 75mm Royal Ordnance Factory L5A1 gun that could fire a variety of HE, AP, and HESH rounds. Which is awesome. Oh, yeah. Big time. If you've got a squad or platoon pinned down by a machine gun, a nest, or or a bunker, they can come in there and high-explosive armor piercing, or even that he- Hesh round. Yeah, yeah. Again, we have to get oh, off our butts are. and do an yeah. ammo episode. I can promise you it will be the next one. I'm still in the process of working on it. And it was designed not for anti-tank purposes, but rather to deal with fortifications and other light vehicles alike. The gunner also had a coaxial Browning M1919A4 machine gun firing normal rounds and tracers as a complement for targeting. In addition, the two front slopes of the turret received banks of 3 by 2 grenade launchers that can fire either smoke or frag grenades. See, there's another thing. There's probably more to grenade launchers. They could also fire tear gas. Yeah. Uh, A lot of the police department models that that were used in Ireland and and in Germany and some other places, um, I think Oman... Yeah. In Yemen, they had replaced the frags or smoke with actual tear gas. So, for but, law enforcement, I'd love to see a dang water cannon or something. Yeah, on that sucker. Instead of having the yeah. seventy six on yeah. there, have, have the water cannon uh-huh. to help. But even the tear gas poppers. Yeah. Because, oh, like yeah. we said, it had NBC protection, mm, which true. was you know nuclear, yeah. biological, and chemical. Yeah. Which is tear gas. Um. So that's really really cool. We have to give this vehicle props and hats off to the engineers uh, for making a good vehicle. I know in 2014, uh, it was still in service with the Indonesian Calvary Battalion and Recon Companies. Nowadays, most are retired and in storage, but many of the vehicles can be purchased by private collectors at a relative low cost. 
like we were talking about uh, at Khaki Imports yeah. down in Tulsa. Yeah. He had them. You know, they might not be in military, you know, frontline service with a lot of these countries, but a lot of countries still have them today using them for emergency crowd controls sure. and stuff like that. You know, secondary uh, federal police departments and stuff like that. Yeah. They're still in use today. So hats off to those guys. Like I said, I remember watching CNN when Iraq began the invasion of Kuwait. And on the second day uh, of the invasion, watching these Saladins trying to fight Iraq main battle tanks from the elite Republican Guard near the palace of Kuwait. Uh, which brings us to our second point, the invasion of Kuwait. Uh, tell us about it, Russ. On August 2nd, 1990, at 2 a.m. local time, by Saddam Hussein's order, Iraq launched an invasion of Kuwait with four elite Iraqi Republican Guard divisions and special forces units equivalent to a full division. The main thrust was conducted by the commandos deployed by helicopters and boats to attack Kuwait City while the other divisions seized the airports and two air bases. In support of these units, the Iraqi army deployed a squadron of MI-25 helicopter gunships, several units of MI-8 and MI-17 transport helicopters, as well as a squadron of Bell 412 helicopters. So they've got all their special forces together, have made it into a division, basically in the size of a division, and moved them in with four Republican Guard divisions of heavy tanks. He had that planned out pretty oh, well. Yeah, and time. let's let's face it: if you don't know what an Mi twenty five uh, helicopter gunship looks like, you should go look at it. Uh-huh. They are, they are. <laughs> you know, we're going to have to do oh, yeah. an episode on, on that because they were yeah. also tank killers. Yep, the gunships. Yep. yep. The foremost mission of the helicopter units was to transport and support Iraqi commandos into Kuwait City and subsequently to support the advance of ground troops. The Iraqi Air Force had at least two squadrons of Sukhoi Su-22s, one of Su-25, one of Mirage F-1, and two of MiG-23 fighter bombers. You know what? Those SU-25s and those MiG-23s, e- even those SU-22s, those are some deadly aircraft. They are. The main task of the Iraqi Air Force was to establish air superiority through limited airstrikes against two main air bases of the Kuwaiti Air Force, whose aircraft consisted mainly of Mirage F-1s and Douglas A-4KU Skyhawks. Meanwhile, certain targets in the capital of Kuwait City were bombed by Iraqi aircraft. Again, this wasn't an actual declaration of war, you know, where they announced, okay, we are going to war, we're going to attack you on this date. So these SUs come flying in, and they're hitting targets on the ground dead, you know. These guys haven't even had a chance to get to their airplanes. Wow. Well, I wonder what that sounds like. Yeah. Pearl Harbor. Pearl no, Harbor. Uh, yeah. Kind of unfair, but okay. Man. I'm sorry, Russ. Go ahead. Despite months of Iraqi saber rattling, Kuwait did not have its forces on alert, and they were caught unaware. The first indication of the Iraqi ground advance was from a radar-equipped aerostat that detected an Iraqi armor column moving south. Okay. The Iraqis 
Japanese, I mean, sorry, yeah, Iraqis, yeah. are warning, you know, there's all sorts of activity going on. And wasn't it Pearl Harbor that, that we detected on radar first? And we were like, oh, just nah, nah, can't never. be. Can't nah. be anything big. They wouldn't dare. No. Kuwaiti air, ground, and naval forces resisted, but were vastly outnumbered. In central Kuwait, the 35th Armor Brigade deployed approximately a battalion of chieftain tanks, BMPs, and an artillery battery against the Iraqis and fought delaying actions near Al-Jahar, west of Kuwait City. Basically, they got a battalion of chieftain tanks and, and their uh, M or BPMs and, and moving the artillery up, and, and they're fighting just to hold these guys back. These are some brave boys because the air bases have already been bombed. There's no air cover coming and they have attack helicopters in the air supporting their, these Kuwaitis had decided, no, we're being invaded. We're going to fight. So hats off to these guys. In the South, the 15th armor brigade moved immediately to evacuate its forces to Saudi Arabia of the small Kuwaiti Navy. Two missile boats were able to evade capture or destruction. Kuwait Air Force aircraft were scrambled, but approximately 20% were lost or captured. An air battle with the Iraqi helicopter airborne forces was fought over Kuwait City, inflicting heavy losses on the Iraqi elite troops, and a few combat sorties were flown against Iraqi ground forces. So what they could scrape together, they're out there fighting. Yeah. If you've never really looked at the map, look at Kuwait size and look at Iraq size. Okay, you're talking about pilots that were probably in these helicopters uh, taking showers or whatever. And the alarm gets out and they're like, we are being invaded. They are attacking our city right now. So these guys probably still wet, you know, have to get dressed, jump in their tank and go in and start fighting an air battle. From copter to copter, shooting missiles, machine guns. I remember the video, and and it was amazing. Yeah. You know, these Kuwaitis really tried to fight back. You know, they were defending their homes. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. Go ahead. The remaining 80% were then evacuated to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Some aircraft even taking off from the highways adjacent to the bases as the runways were overrun. While these aircraft were not used in support of the subsequent Gulf War, the Free Kuwait Air Force assisted Saudi Arabia in patrolling the southern border with Yemen, which was considered a threat by the Saudi Arabians because of the Yemen-Iraq ties. Iraqi troops attacked Dasman Palace, the royal residence, resulting in the Battle of Dasman Palace. Now, this is where I saw uh, the Saladins uh, getting in, trying to defend the palace. But I'm sorry, I cut in again. Go ahead. The Kuwaiti, the Kuwaiti Amiri Guard, supported by local police and chieftain tanks and a platoon of Saladin armored cars, managed to repel an airborne assault by Iraqi special forces. But the palace fell after a landing by Iraqi Marines. Everybody's fighting. They're grabbing the cops and giving them guns and saying, we're going to be invaded. We've got to get as many aircraft out. We need to send as many people we can. You've got to hold as long as you can. So here comes their special forces in these helicopters. 
and, and there's a tremendous air battle going over head and the people of the city are, of course running trying to get to safety these guys are holding the line with their lives so people can get out right. now, i don't care what your thought uh, is about uh, uh that part of country or what your thought about kuwait is i'm talking about the man who stood up uh, and we're talking cops like me and you you know, being forced out to fight against special forces. And they're trying to hold the palace as long as they can, because that's their main point. And they beat off these, you know, special helicopter forces, mm. but then they landed the Iraqi Marines. Yeah. Uh, go ahead. The Kuwaiti National Guard, as well as additional Amiri guards, arrived, but the palace remained occupied, and Republican Guard tanks rolled into Kuwait City after several hours of heavy fighting. You know, people say, well, the Kuwaitis fell in, you know, like two, three days or like an hour. No, they didn't. These guys were fighting. And people say, oh, well, you know, no big deal. You got to remember, take the city you're, you're listening right now, where you're listening right now, and then there's helicopter forces dropping out, and you've got to defend not only your country, but the street you live on. Yeah. You know. It'd just being an incredible feeling. I mean, it's and, just. And, and for people to just to wave off this battle, you're wrong. Yeah. These guys, there wasn't many of them. We're not yeah. saying it was one of the biggest battles ever. But these guys gave their lives doing, protecting their streets, their families, their people, their citizens. That's that's a hero to me. Well, it is. But I'm sorry, go ahead. The Emir of Kuwait, Jabar al-Ahmad al-Jabar al-Sabah, had already fled into the Saudi Arabian desert. His younger half-brother, Sheikh Fahad al-Ahmad al-Jabar al-Sabah, was shot and killed by invading Iraqi forces as he attempted to defend Dosman Palace, after which his body was placed in front of a tank and run over according to an Iraqi soldier who was present and deserted after the assault. Okay. Now, I'm going to give, I can't say this gentleman's name, but the emir or premier or yeah. emir of Kuwait runs off. And his younger half-brother says, you go, I'm going to try and hold him back as long as I can. That That's a family member. This is somebody that... Maybe two or three days ago, they were on the golf course or, yeah. or having dinner together. Sure. And, and now he's got to put a gun in his hand mm -hmm. and they shot him down and they found out who he was. And then they put him in front of a tank and ran him over and squished him. That's. That's pretty wicked. You know. Man. But, but what a hero. Yeah. You know, his thoughts. And I can't put myself in his place. Oh, wow. No. But, you know, to give his people time, his military time, his brother to get time to get to safety and sit there and fight it out. And then to get his body and run it over with a tank. Man. Man, that's some low stuff. Yeah, that is. You, you got to have some respect. I don't know. I, I better Plum shut evil, up. Yep. I better shut up before I get in trouble. <laughs> Towards the end of the first day of the invasion, only pockets of resistance were left in the country. By August 3rd, the last military units were desperately fighting delaying actions at choke points and other defensible positions throughout the country. 
until out of ammunition or overrun by Iraqi forces. They're being invaded, and these guys know they're not going to survive. Well, yeah. But they're sitting there, and they're fighting on streets, mm. choke points, mm. until they're out of ammo. The, there's nothing left to fight with. And then here comes the Republican Guard or heavy yeah. main battle tanks. Ali al Assam Air Base of the Kuwaiti Air Force was the only base still occupied on August 3rd, and Kuwaiti aircraft flew resupply missions from Saudi Arabia throughout the day in an effort to mount a defense. However, by nightfall, Ali al Assam Air Base had been overrun by Iraqi forces. From then on, it was only a matter of time until all units of the Kuwaiti military were forced to retreat or be overrun. Again, we are not we are never in support of war. These men had families on both sides. We're, and we're not blaming the Iraqi people and we're not uh, trying to make the Kuwaiti people look heroic. But me and Russ have always gave props to men that stood up against the odds and did what they thought they was right. Sure. We've gave props to some German soldiers, uh, some Soviet soldiers. Uh, it doesn't matter when you stand up and you believe yeah. it, and you know you're fighting for your family. Yeah. That, that's a hero. I'll talk, I'll talk a little bit about the losses. And uh, Iraq had 295 killed, 361 uh, wounded, 120 tanks and uh, their armored vehicles were destroyed, and 39 uh, aircraft were destroyed. And four of their ships were sunk. Okay. This is them coming in unannounced, uh, quite unaware, positive nothing bad's going to happen. They, they wouldn't dare. Boom. Then it happens. And they still lose 120 tanks. Yeah. So don't say that they weren't fighting yeah. hard. Oh, yeah. They had four ships sunk. You know, there's Kuwaiti, you know, People out there in the Navy and mm. the armor doing their best. But the Kuwaitis had 420 killed, 250 tanks destroyed or captured, 850 armored vehicles destroyed or captured. They had 57 aircraft destroyed. They had 17 ships sunk, and they had 56 artillery pieces destroyed. So, yeah, these are guys... You can look at the 150 or 120 tanks that the Iraqis lost compared to 250. The T-90 is is a good tank. Well, sure. Yeah. You know, it's still in use yeah. today. Yeah. Kuwaiti's got secondhand sure. British chieftains. Yeah. You know, I, I guess we give props to heroes. Sure. And, and these are guys yeah. that knew. Yeah. That knew they couldn't hold. Yeah. But they did. Speaking of heroes, we ought to put out there that if you know any heroes or anything that you've worked beside in the military, any wars, don't even have to be any conflicts. But if it's a hero in your mind, that hey, send their information our way and we'll give them a huge shout out. A- absolutely. And I, I think that's really great. Oh, man. I, I, we, we are now officially telling you, if you have somebody that, Served, and we don't mean just the U.S. It can be yeah. 
uh, Kuwait. It yeah, could be sure. the Philippines, uh, Australia, yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. If you have somebody in any conflict yeah. or any action that you even think if was, you've got an relative that fought in World War Two or World War One, I, I mean, send us a message. Oh yeah, I promise. You, I promise yeah. you. You send us a Facebook yeah. message or on our website. We're gonna. We're going to give these people a shout out. Oh, yeah. Big time. Just give us a little description of who they were, yeah. what, where who they, they yeah. where they were, and who they what, served with. And, and who the, they served yeah. with. And uh, uh, we will definitely give them a shout out. Oh, yeah. Big because time. Because we're big supporters of Heck, yeah. actual heroes. Yep. We do have some shout outs. And the we first do. one, I wanted to shout out to all our YouTube l- watchers. Oh, yeah. Um, I feel bad because I haven't been checking the comments <laughs> on there, and I know you have. And, and we've got a ton of them, but, uh, you know, uh, had, uh, one guy named Huang, yeah. um, that commented about the Iranian tanks that we did and Tasman. Oh, wow. He's always commenting. Oh, man. So we're giving you guys oh, shout outs. Uh, if you do catch That's our, cool. if you do catch our, uh, YouTube, uh, channel and you listen through that, yeah, please. Yeah. Let us feel, know. Feel free to comment. And, and believe me, if you are listening to this show and you do not like us, go to YouTube and give us a thumbs down. There you go. If you're, you know, you don't even have to be, yeah. you know, noticed or, you know, it doesn't show who voted us yeah. down. Yeah. You can vote us down because we've, we've had tons of complaints. Yeah. Um, we've had quite a few come out and say, you know, you guys do basically cold readings and you don't even research on how to say people's names. Would you be offended if I told you that me and Russell do sit down and we try to come up with the proper way to say yeah, names? Yeah. You know, but we get names. Yeah. You're again, you're talking about two rednecks oh, from man. Uh, yeah. Southeast Kansas. Yeah. And if you don't know where, you know, Parson, Kansas is, <laughs> Google map it and, and look at our fine, you know, in the middle of BFE. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was leaving it at that. Yeah, BFE. So, so you guys. No, that, this is this is our hobby here, and we're yeah, we're not professionals, and we, we have will be great listeners, you oh, know, yeah. and friends of the show like Ed yeah. and uh, Craig yeah. and, and a bunch of others. And we're putting this information out there because guess what? Nobody, nobody was it. doing it before now, right? I mean. You don't like our show? Yeah. Start your own. You're we'll even right. give you a yeah. shout out. Heck yeah, we will. But it, it, it's to get the interest in the armored vehicles and what's out there and what's been out there, and that's what we're here to do. And then we had, we had a, another couple of guys say, "Well, you're just reading stuff you found on Wiki." I'm like, "Yeah, but is it wrong? Well, what do you mean? Is the information correct?" Well, yeah. <laughs> okay so, so what's his point so we I got mean, some stuff from wiki you know and one guy was saying well you just read that straight out of the military encyclopedia you know that craig works uh, for what do they call it tank encyclopedia yeah or what do they call it tank encyclopedia.com yeah shout out to those guys you know and they're like well you just read right off that yeah because the information yeah, is there it's there and you didn't know it was yeah. there until you cracked a book and looked That's or it. you yep. went and looked yep yeah Prove us wrong. I mean, if you don't think we're right, Mm -hmm. and the information we're putting out there is not right, prove us wrong. Don't get me wrong. Me and Russell have spent tons of research and books and and reading. Uh, We travel to museums. 
but we're getting our information like when we went yeah. down to Oklahoma City. We talked to that old tanker. Yeah. He was driving the M4 Sherman. Sure. So when you come and say, well, I know more about the Sherman. <sighs> he, you know what? We talked to the guy that drove it. Bless your heart. <laughs> this bless all your hearts. But don't stop listening to us. No, we still no, enjoy, like, yeah. you know, negative yeah. comments. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, when we go to Bovington, people are going to be uh, there to beat us up. There you go. <laughs> if we get to New Zealand, right? <laughs> you know, Tony's <laughs> wife is going to beat us up. But, uh, uh, won't be any rolling pins left in the stores down there, probably. People missed the point of the show. When we started this, we said our goal was to get you to crack a book. That's it. And if you cracked a book, if you've done your research and you come back and you slam us on it. Hey. We win. That's it. Bless your heart. That's it. We did what we were supposed to do. That's it. We have always said we're kind of like the frosted flakes of tank (laughs) historians. And a huge shout out to the real tank historians that are out there. and That bust their butt. I wish I had that kind of time and that kind of access to those archives to to be able to do that on a daily basis. The people that write the articles. Yeah. That... Do the research, you know, to go to the archives and dig it up, like Rob Cohen and, and these guys, and to put us in touch with it. You know, that's amazing. It is. Oh, talking about new stuff or new history, tell us what's going on for Tanks in the News. Yeah, an article, um, once again, um, Tanks in the News. This article comes from uh, military.com again and written by Matthew Cox. Dated February 16th of 2021. You know what? I'm going to try to get a hold of this Matthew Cox. If you know, if you know, or Matthew, if you're listening, send us an email. We, we want to do an interview with you. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but the title of the article um, we're going to cover this time is the army is seeking firms to build highly mobile light tanks for infantry brigades. And it just kicks me right in the shoe that now the American army is putting out for these light armored vehicles. Yeah. China's already got them. I this, know. Uh, the Russia's already got them. And in fact, everybody has them, but our last, I know armored fighting light vehicle was that Sheridan Boo. crap. <laughs> Boo for <Crap>. the crap. <laughs> you said Boo for crap. The <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and people, you know, would contact us oh, on that. I know. And said, you were cr- Absolutely correct, yeah. and here's why. I, I was a tank commander, and it exploded on me. So I'm like, oh, okay. Man. Yeah, they're calling this particular tank that they're in the middle of designing right now the Mobile Protected Firepower, or MPF for short. And what they're in the process of doing right now is looking for a couple of companies to, to build these things, manufacture and build these things. The United States government right now are are looking for, not calling it a tank, they're calling it a mobile protected firepower, or MPF. Yeah. Basically, they sent out all these contracts, and I think they only had two say, yeah, we're going to build you something. Yeah. So right now, they're they're building some prototypes for this uh, uh, federal, you know, contract that they got from the website. And, and they're building these new MPF systems. The actual MPF is planned as a tracked vehicle with a minimum crew consisting of a commander, a gunner, and a driver. It'll be designed to protect the crew from small arms fire, 
overhead artillery blast, underbelly mine de- detonations, and side improvised explosive devices. The Army's requirements call for the MPF to be armed with a 105mm or even possibly a 120mm cannon to engage hardened targets at long range. Wait a minute. Okay, now wait a minute. I, I got to be nice. Let me see if I can be nice to the <laughs> engineers, or not even the engineers, the guys that come up with this plan. They want a three-man vehicle, right, with a 120 or 105 yeah. millimeter or 120 millimeter cannon on a light vehicle. On a light vehicle. What are they doing? <laughs> are, are, are they trying to get, remember when we did the ISU-152 or yeah. uh, Object 704 yeah. episode where, you know, the Russians were putting great big cannons on uh, little bitty frames? I know. What are they, they're like, you know what? Mm. The Soviets had the right idea. Let's, let's. <laughs> Let's get our newest little tank. Let's give it a try. You know, about the same size as the Saladin. Yeah. And we're going to put 120 millimeter. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, Go ahead, Russ. I'm sorry. The MPF concept emerged several years ago when maneuver leaders started calling for a lightweight armored platform armed with a large enough cannon to destroy enemy armor for light infantry forces. And the idea was to field it to airborne units for forced entry operations. However, the MPF will not be airdroppable, and the current plan is to have Air Force C-17 Globemasters carry two MPFs each and deliver them after an airfield has already been secured. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, okay. And that's probably a good thing because no, the that... U.S. Army has not had good luck with airdropping tanks. Oh, I remember when they tried with the Sheridan? I don't think. Well, it remember really... the guy, the guy that was a uh, tank commander of Sheridan, and they said they dropped it on a skid, and, yeah. and it slid into uh, a building and uh, crashed it. Yeah. That that also said something about the Sheridan. We we <laughs> I think we still has that picture. We never posted it, but they slid on a skid on a skid. And it actually hit a building, a brick building, <laughs> and totaled the Sheridan. Brick wall was fine. Oh, Concrete man. wall was fine. Sheridan was destroyed. Yeah. They had broken wood and wood on a tank. <laughs> I Okay. Just don't and, get it. And that was a big waste of money. Oh, wow. So I, I have a big problem with this. Yeah. Uh, n- not that the, they need a light tank. Yeah. And, and, and three... Crew, okay, I can understand. With uh, all the electronic gears that's going in, thermal, infrared, uh, radar, uh, GPS, everything, something that the troops out in the field can basically use as like a, a, a focus point. Yeah. And to be able to hit, you know, targets. I, I don't think you can get. I would be probably more interested in this project if it was someday being able to do away with the three crewmen and make it a, a drone drone. Yeah. But if they can make it into something like that. But. You can't take a light tank and put a one Oh five or 120 millimeter and expect it to kill like oh, T 90 tanks. Man. You know, that's another job. Yeah. If you're in the field and yeah. they say, Hey, there's a division yeah. of tanks coming through the guy in the field with the M 16. And sometimes even today, I can almost see that as a job for our special forces 
painting these suckers with lasers and letting the Air Force fly over and Wipe them out. drop a bomb on the top of them. You know, because so, uh, if you don't have air support and yeah, superiority. Yeah. So You better pretty quick if you don't. <laughs> and again, we have no pull with no, the U.S. government. No, no, no. We're just telling you, yeah. our government, save uh, the taxpayers' no. money. Oh, yeah. They're going to build a three-man tank that's on a track, that's quick, has room for all the electronics, can protect everybody against landmines yeah. and, and you know heavy machine gun fire and everything. Sure. And... Put a hundred twenty millimeter. Uh, you know what? If you're a designer, you should contact these people and tell them, "Hey, I got a pretty good design for you." Yeah, because I, I keep looking at the mess that the you know Sheridan had. I know. You know, and, and this will probably be, be what their first attempt at a light tank since the Sheridan. Was it even a light tank? I don't even know what it was considered, but. So, Airborne assault vehicle. So we have the Striker, which is a great vehicle. We've done an episode on the Striker. Mm-hmm. If you don't know what the Striker is, go listen to our episode. But they're trying to make this thing for airborne and other light infantry units that can be used to seize airfields as part for their heavier follow-up forces. Yeah. Okay, here's the question. It also says that... The plan is to have C-17 Globemasters carry two of these MPFs and deliver them after an airfield has been secured. So so they're telling these airborne and light infantry guys, don't worry, before you can take an airfield and secure it you know, or, or capture it, we're going to make sure you have these light tanks. But on the other hand, you have to take it before we can deliver them. <laughs> what the... <laughs> only in America, people. Only in America. Oh, man. But anyway, that's tanks in the news today. That's tanks in the news. <laughs> and what the United States government is currently doing. And if you guys out there have any good articles on news and stuff tanks in your countries or whatever they're doing today with tanks well, or armor. We yeah. are more than hey. happy to make fun of any waste. Forward the... Articles to us. If your government is wasting it. money on, on a tank design, yeah. please call us. We'll research it and we'll <laughs> laugh at it with you. Make, you got to go capture an Air Force oh, I know. base yeah. to be able to land it. To be able to land it. But you got to have these to take the Air Force master. base. That's probably why they only had two people look at it. I'm in the wrong business. <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, contractors are you know multi-millionaires. What? Put let's, this stuff out there. Let's talk about the people that really help the show. There we go. Let's talk our, about our Patreons. Who's yeah. our first? First patron we want to give a shout out to is old Jake Izaki. He's been with us for quite some time. Good kid. Yes. And Kim and Eric Shear still with us. Really do appreciate that too. Uh, we got Riley VB. Thanks, Riley. And Razbaz. Major shout out to those guys. Antonio Bernarda. <laughs> Love that dude. And Slam Jamington. Still with us. Solid dude. Alejandro Martinez. Another solid dude. I know. Really do appreciate it, guys. No doubt. ODS Theron and my personal friend, Rick Schmidt. Very Rick? Cool. Yeah, old Rick and ODS has been with us, I think, from the start. From the Pretty start. Close, yeah. Good guys. Oh, man. And if you'd like to support the show, oh, God, please. <laughs> we have so much software and stuff. We had no clue. Yeah. That this show was going to explode and be this big. We have people 
like we said, in the Philippines, uh, Russia, it's South a Korea. Worldwide gig right now. It's it we, we we're on there. iTunes, Spotify, Google, Sp- uh, Podbean, YouTube, and now we're thinking about uh, for our Patreon users, we're thinking about doing live broadcast when we're actually doing the show Yeah, that they can sit there and watch the show and can throw us some comments uh, and we can answer them there. And that'll be probably either through Facebook live or, and, or YouTube YouTube live. Yeah. Yeah. We can do it on both. Yeah. I think. So that's something we're looking into for our patrons. There's a lot of behind the scenes antics that (laughs) there really is. And the fact you'll see me shaking my head a lot. (laughs) <laughs> that Russell's working what twelve hour shifts? Oh yeah, four days a week, and, and they keep calling you in. If I'm cover. lucky, yeah. So, what okay. you you did? What six days at twelve hour shifts in a row? Six out of seven days, yeah. On twelve hour shifts. On twelve hour shifts. That's yeah. insane, yeah. and that's really nothing. I've done a heck of a lot more than that. That shows dedication, brother. Oh man, and, and we uh, I personally appreciate you putting on the badge hey. the gun every day and getting out there, man. I'm just so glad I'm retired. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Well, Hopefully here in a year and a half or two years, I'll hang your gun, hang it up and spend a lot more time on this. When I hung up my badge, my gun was, you know, I had a doctor come up and say, your knee's done. Yeah. You'll never be a cop again. And I had to do a disability retirement. And in a lot of ways, it broke my heart. Yeah. But in a lot of ways, it made me feel oh, so much man. better. Yeah, I'm waiting for that day. You listeners that are in the military and military backgrounds or law enforcement or public safety, even the firefighters. Yeah. You know, I've had firefighters say, you know what? That helmet gets heavier and heavier yeah. every day. Oh, yeah. And that badge, it's it's heavy. Yeah. And sometimes you just got to know when to hang up your oh, guns yeah. and give a thumbs up. And Tell you what, I've been doing this kind of work. In law enforcement for 26 years now, and it's changed a lot over the years and not it, for the better. It really has. It really has. Well, some things have well, improved. Yeah. You know, body cameras yeah, and, yeah. and uh, some of the training that we received. I'll, I'll admit, uh, racial profiling, yeah. uh, uh, um, other biases and stuff was had to be addressed. Yeah. And, and I think we did a really good job. Some of us didn't. And some of us shouldn't have been cops or still be cops. Oh, man. But um, it it is getting better. Yeah. I mean, if you remember, one of the first sheriff's departments I had to work for, you had to buy your own car. Buy your own car? Yeah. Ooh, man. You you went out to a Ford dealership and bought a Crown Vic, and they gave you a raise to match your car payment. So they had like a separate check that you would get. For your car. Yeah. So they'd say, your check is going to be $300. Well, you still had to go and buy the car in in your name, but you got these checks that paid for the Crown Vic. that's different. And, and of course, they they put the radios on and the the lights. But another reason, they paid for your gas. They gave you a gas car. Yeah. And they paid for your tires and any repairs and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that car was in your name. So when they were saying, hey, your car uh, hit 50,000 miles or 100,000 miles, you had to go buy another car. Wow. 
That's I, different. Yeah. It, the only th- reason I loved working for that sheriff's department is they let you pick your own gun. Yeah. You had to buy your own gun. <laughs> I apologize. You had to buy your own gun. And I was carrying one of those uh, old Smith and Wesson three fifty seven mags six shooter. Oh, well, that shows your age, Charlie. Because I don't think I've ever shot a six shooter. <sighs> very first, <laughs> very first handgun on patrol was a a uh, Smith and Wesson thirty eight special. The old patrol models, mm. uh, six shots, and we. <laughs> You, you had your six shots in your holster, <laughs> and they gave you two little uh, speed loaders. And, and yeah. by the time you got off six shots and then reloaded twice, you were out of bullets for number one. Start calling you six-shooter Charlie. Uh, you know what? <laughs> I, I'll say this. My six-shooter never jammed. You're darn right, yeah. You, you, I can every see time that. I pull yeah. the trigger, it shot. There you go. Gosh, no, we're talking. Oh, I know. We got we're off talking, on another tangent. Talking cop stuff. Oh, we're sorry. Uh, that's a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we appreciate you listening to us. I guess we'll just go ahead and call it. This yeah. is Charlie. And this is Russell. As always, happy tanking. And have a great week.